Chapter 4, Part 10 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Beattie. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1, by Charles Mackay. The Alchemist, Part 10. Jacob Bowman. It is now time to speak of Jacob Bowman, who thought he could discover the secret of the transmutation of metals in the Bible, and who invented a strange heterogeneous doctrine of mingled alchemy and religion, and founded upon it the sect of the Ereocrucians. He was born at Gorlitz, in Upper Lusatia, in 1575, and followed till his thirtieth year the occupation of a shoemaker. In this obscurity he remained with the character of a visionary, and a man of unsettled mind, until the promulgation of the Rosicrucian philosophy in his part of Germany, toward the year 1607 or 1608. From that time, he began to neglect his leather, and buried his brain under the rubbish of metaphysics. The works of Paracelsus fell into his hands, and these, with the reveries of the Rosicrucians, so completely engrossed his attention that he abandoned his trade altogether, sinking at the same time from a state of comparative independence into poverty and destitution. But he was nothing daunted by the miseries and privations of the flesh. His mind was fixed upon the beings of another sphere, and in thought he was already the new apostle of the human race. In the year 1612, after a meditation of four years, he published his first work, entitled Aurora, or The Rising of the Sun, embodying the ridiculous notions of Paracelsus, and worse, confounding the confusion of that writer. The philosopher's stone might, he contended, be discovered by a diligent search of the Old and New Testaments, and more especially of the Apocalypse, which alone contained all the secrets of alchemy. He contended that the divine grace operated by the same rules and followed the same methods that the divine providence observed in the natural world and that the minds of men were purged from their vices and corruptions in the very same manner that metals were purified from their dross, namely, by fire. Besides the sylphs, gnomes, undines, and salamanders, he acknowledged various ranks and orders of demons. He pretended to invisibility and absolute chastity. He also said that if it pleased him, he could abstain for years from meat and drink, and all the necessities of the body. It is needless, however, to pursue his follies any further. He was reprimanded for writing this work by the magistrates of Gorlitz, and commanded to leave the pen alone and stick to his wax, that his family might not become chargeable to the parish. He neglected this good advice, and continued his studies, burning minerals and purifying metals one day, and mystifying the word of God on the next. 
he afterwards wrote three other works as sublimely ridiculous as the first the one was entitled metallurgia and has the slight merit of being the least obscure of his compositions another was called the temporal mirror of eternity and the last his theosophy revealed full of allegories and metaphors Quote, all strange and geeson devoid of sense and ordinary reason Unquote. bowman died in sixteen twenty four leaving behind him a considerable number of admiring disciples many of them became during the seventeenth century as distinguished for absurdity as their master amongst whom may be mentioned Githyle, Wendenhagen, John Jacob Zimmerman, and Abraham Frankenberg. Their heresy rendered them obnoxious to the Church of Rome, and many of them suffered long imprisonment and torture for their faith. One, named Coleman, was burned alive at Moscow in 1684 on a charge of sorcery. Bowman's works were translated into English and published many years afterwards by an enthusiast named William Law. Morimus Peter Morimus, a notorious alchemist and contemporary of Bowman, endeavored, in 1630, to introduce the Rosicrucian philosophy into Holland. He applied to the States General to grant him a public audience that he might explain the tenets of the sect and disclose a plan for rendering Holland the happiest and richest country on the earth, by means of the Philosopher's Stone and the service of the elementary spirits. The States General wisely resolved to have nothing to do with him. He thereupon determined to shame them by printing his book, which he did at Leyden the same year. It was entitled, The Book of the Most Hidden Secrets of Nature, and was divided into three parts the first treating of perpetual motion the second of the transmutation of metals and the third of the universal medicine he also published some german works upon the rosicrucian philosophy at frankfurt in sixteen seventeen poetry and romance are deeply indebted to the rosicrucians for many a graceful creation the literature of england france and germany contains hundreds of sweet fictions whose machinery has been borrowed from their daydreams the quote, delicate ariel of shakespeare stands preeminent among the number from the same source pope drew the airy tenants of belinda's dressing-room in his charming rape of the lock and la motte Fouquet, the beautiful and capricious water-nymph Undine, around whom he has thrown more grace and loveliness, and for whose imaginary woes he has excited more sympathy than ever were bestowed on a supernatural being. Sir Walter Scott also endowed the White Lady of Avenel with many of the attributes of the Undines or water-sprites. German romance and lyrical poetry teem with allusions to sylphs, gnomes, undines, and salamanders, and the French 
have not been behind in substituting them in works of fiction for the more cumbrous mythology of greece and rome the sylphs more especially have been the favorites of the bards and have become so familiar to the popular mind as to be in a manner confounded with that other race of ideal beings the fairies who can boast of an antiquity much more venerable in the annals of superstition having these obligations to the rosicrucians no lover of poetry can wish however absurd they were that such a sect of philosophers had never existed bory just at the time that michael mayer was making known to the world the existence of such a body as the rosicrucians there was born in italy a man who was afterwards destined to become the most conspicuous member of the fraternity the alchymic mania never called forth the ingenuity of a more consummate or more successful impostor than joseph francis bory he was born in sixteen sixteen according to some authorities and sixteen twenty seven according to others at milan where his father the signor branda bori practised as a physician at the age of sixteen joseph was sent to finish his education at the jesuits college in rome where he distinguished himself by his extraordinary memory he learned everything to which he applied himself with the utmost ease in the most voluminous works no fact was too minute for his retention and no study was so abstruse but that he could master it but any advantages he might have derived from this facility were neutralized by his ungovernable passions and his love of turmoil and debauchery he was involved in continual difficulty as well with the heads of college as with the police of rome and acquired so bad a character that years could not remove it by the aid of his friends he established himself as a physician in rome and also obtained some situation in the pope's household in one of his fits of studiousness he grew enamoured of alchemy and determined to devote his energies to the discovery of the philosopher's stone of unfortunate propensities he had quite sufficient besides this to bring him to poverty his pleasures were as expensive as his studies and both were of a nature to destroy his health and ruin his fair fame at the age of thirty-seven he found that he could not live by the practice of medicine and began to look about for some other employment he became in sixteen fifty three private secretary to the marquis de Mirogli the minister of the archduke of innsbruck at the court of rome he continued in this capacity for two years leading however the same abandoned life as heretofore frequenting the society of gamesters debauchees and loose women involving himself in disgraceful street quarrels and alienating the patrons who were desirous to befriend him all at once a sudden change was observed in his conduct the abandoned rake put on the outward sedateness of a philosopher the scoffing sinner proclaimed that he had forsaken his evil ways and would live thenceforth a model of virtue to his friends this reformation was as pleasing as it was unexpected and bory gave obscure hints that it had been brought about by some miraculous manifestation 
of a superior power. He pretended that he held converse with beneficent spirits, that the secrets of God and nature were revealed to him, and that he had obtained possession of the philosopher's stone. Like his predecessor, Jacob Bowman, he mixed up religious questions with his philosophical jargon, and took measures for declaring himself the founder of a new sect. This, at Rome itself, and in the very palace of the Pope, was a hazardous proceeding, and Bory just awoke to a sense of it in time to save himself from the dungeons of the castle of St. Angelo. He fled to Innsbruck, where he remained about a year, and then returned to his native city of Milan. The reputation of his great sanctity had gone before him, and he found many persons ready to attach themselves to his fortunes. All who were desirous of entering into the new communion took an oath of poverty and relinquished their possessions for the general good of the fraternity. Bory told them that he had received from the archangel Michael a heavenly sword, upon the hilt of which were engraven the names of the seven celestial intelligences. Whoever shall refuse, said he, to enter into my new sheepfold shall be destroyed by the papal armies of whom God has predestined me to be the chief. To those who follow me all joy shall be granted. I shall soon bring my chemical studies to a happy conclusion by the discovery of the philosopher's stone, and by this means we shall all have as much gold as we desire. I am assured of the aid of the angelic hosts, and more especially of the archangel Michaels. When I began to walk in the way of the spirit, I had a vision of the night, and was assured by an angelic voice that I should become a prophet. In sign of it, I saw a palm tree, surrounded with all the glory of paradise. The angels come to me whenever I call, and reveal to me all the secrets of the universe. The sylphs and elementary spirits obey me, and fly to the uttermost ends of the worlds to serve me, and those whom I delight to honor. By force of continually repeating such stories as these, Bory soon found himself at the head of a very considerable number of adherents. As he figures in these pages as an alchemist, and not a religious sectarian, it will be unnecessary to repeat the doctrines which he taught with regard to some of the dogmas of the Church of Rome, and which exposed him to the fierce resentment of papal authority. They were to the full as ridiculous as his philosophical pretensions. As the number of his followers increased, he appears to have cherished the idea of becoming one day a new Mahomet, and of founding, in his native city of Milan, a monarchy and religion of which he should be the king and the prophet. He had taken measures, in the year 1658, for seizing the guards at all the gates of that city, and formally declaring himself the monarch of the Milanese. Just as he thought the plan ripe for execution, it was discovered twenty of his followers were arrested and he himself managed with the utmost difficulty to escape to the neutral territory of switzerland where the papal displeasure could not 
reach him. The trial of his followers commenced forthwith, and the whole of them were sentenced to various terms of imprisonment. Borey's trial proceeded in his absence, and lasted for upwards of two years. He was condemned to death as a heretic and sorcerer in sixteen sixty one, and was burned in effigy in Rome by the common hangman. Borey, in the meantime, lived quietly in Switzerland, indulging himself in railing at the Inquisition and its proceedings. He afterwards went to Strasbourg, intending to fix his residence in that town. He was received with great cordiality, as a man persecuted for his religious opinions, and withal a great alchemist. He found that sphere too narrow for his aspiring genius, and retired in the same year to the more wealthy city of Amsterdam. He there hired a magnificent house, established an equipage which eclipsed in brilliancy those of the richest merchants, and assumed the title of Excellency. Where he got the money to live in this expensive style was long a secret. The adepts in alchemy easily explained it, after their fashion. Sensible people were of the opinion that he had come by it in a less wonderful fashion, for it was remembered that among his unfortunate disciples in Milan there were many rich men, who, in conformity with one of the fundamental rules of the sect, had given up all their earthly wealth into the hands of their founder. In whatever manner the money was obtained, Borey spent it in Holland with an unsparing hand, and was looked up to by the people with no little respect and veneration. He performed several able cures and increased his reputation so much that he was vaunted as a prodigy. He continued diligently the operations of alchemy, and was in daily expectation that he should succeed in turning the inferior metals into gold. This hope never abandoned him, even in the worst extremity of his fortunes, and in his prosperity it led him into the most foolish expenses. But he could not long continue to live so magnificently upon the funds he had brought from Italy, and the philosopher's stone though it promised all for the wants of the morrow, never brought anything for the necessities of today. He was obliged in a few months to retrench by giving up his large house, his gilded coach, and valuable blood horses, his liveried domestics, and his luxurious entertainments. With this diminution of splendor came a diminution of renown, his cures did not appear so miraculous when he went out on foot to perform them, as they had seemed when, quote, his excellency, unquote, had driven to a poor man's door in his carriage with six horses. He sank from a prodigy into an ordinary man. His great friends showed him the cold shoulder, and his humble flatterers carried their incense to some other shrine. Borey now thought it high time to change his quarters. With this view, he borrowed money wherever he could get it, and succeeded in obtaining two hundred thousand florins from a merchant named Demir, to aid, as he said, in discovering the water of life. 
He also obtained six diamonds of great value on pretense that he could remove the flaws from them without diminishing their weight. With this booty, he stole away secretly by night and proceeded to Hamburg. On his arrival in that city, he found the celebrated Christina, the ex-queen of Sweden. He procured an introduction to her and requested her patronage in his endeavor to discover the philosopher's stone. She gave him some encouragement, but Bori, fearing that the merchants of Amsterdam, who had connections in Hamburg, might expose his delinquencies if he remained in the latter city, passed over to Copenhagen and sought the protection of Frederick III, the king of Denmark. This prince was a firm believer in the transmutation of metals. Being in want of money, he readily listened to the plans of an adventurer who had both eloquence and ability to recommend him. He provided Bori with the means to make experiments, and took a great interest in the progress of his operations. He expected every month to possess riches that would buy Peru, and, when he was disappointed, apparently accepted patiently the excuses of Bori, who, upon every failure, was always ready with some plausible explanation. He became in time much attached to him, and defended him from the jealous attacks of his courtiers, and the indignation of those who were grieved to see their monarch the easy dupe of a charlatan. Bori endeavored by every means in his power to find aliment for this good opinion. His knowledge of medicine was useful to him in this respect, and often stood between him and disgrace. He lived six years in this manner at the court of Frederick, but that monarch dying in 1670, he was left without a protector. As he had made more enemies than friends in Copenhagen, and had nothing to hope from the succeeding sovereign, he sought an asylum in another country. He went first to Saxony, but met so little encouragement and encountered so much danger from the emissaries of the Inquisition that he did not remain there many months. Anticipating nothing but persecution in every country that acknowledged the spiritual authority of the Pope, he appears to have taken resolution to dwell in Turkey and turn Mussulman. On his arrival at the Hungarian frontier, on his way to Constantinople, he was arrested on suspicion of being concerned in the conspiracy of the Counts Nadasi and Frangipani, which had just been discovered. In vain he protested his innocence, and divulged his real name and profession. He was detained in prison, and a letter dispatched to the Emperor Leopold to know what should be done with him. The star of his fortunes was on the decline. The letter reached Leopold at an unlucky moment. Pope's nuncio was closeted with his majesty, and he no sooner heard the name of Joseph Francis Bory than he demanded him as a prisoner of the Holy See. The request was complied with, and Bory, closely manacled, was sent under an escort of soldiers to the prison of the Inquisition at Rome. He was too much of an impostor to be deeply tinged with fanaticism, and was not unwilling to make a public recantation of his heresies, if he could thereby save his life. When the proposition was made to him, he accepted it with eagerness. His punishment was commuted into the hardly less severe one of perpetual imprisonment, but he was too happy to escape the clutch of the executioner 
at any price, and he made the amende honorable in face of the assembled multitudes of Rome on, on the 27th of October, 1672. He was then transferred to the prisons of the castle of St. Angelo, where he remained till his death, 23 years afterwards. It is said that, towards the close of his life, considerable indulgence was granted him, that he was allowed to have a laboratory to cheer the solitude of his dungeon by searching for the philosopher's stone. Queen Christina, during her residence at Rome, frequently visited the old man to converse with him upon chemistry and the doctrines of the Rosicrucians. She even obtained permission that he should leave his prison occasionally for a day or two and reside in her palace, she being responsible for his return to captivity. She encouraged him to search for the great secret of the alchemists and provided him with money for the purpose. It may well be supposed that Bori benefited most by this acquaintance, and that Christina got nothing but experience. It is not sure that she even gained that, for until her dying day she was convinced of the possibility of finding the philosopher's stone, and ready to assist any adventurer, either zealous or impudent enough to pretend to it. After Bori had been about eleven years in confinement, a small volume was published at Cologne, entitled The Key of the Cabinet of the Chevalier Joseph Francis Bory, in which are contained many curious letters upon chemistry and other sciences written by him together with a memoir of his life. This book contained a complete exposition of the Rosicrucian philosophy and afforded materials to the Abbe de Villars for his interesting Count de Gabalas, which excited so much attention at the close of the 17th century. Bory lingered in the prison of St. Angelo till 1695, when he died in his 80th year. Beside the key of the cabinet, written originally in Copenhagen in 1666 for the edification of King Frederick III, he published a work upon alchemy and the secret sciences under the title of the mission of romulus to the romans inferior alchemists of the seventeenth century besides the pretenders to the philosopher's stone whose lives have been already narrated this and the preceding century produced a great number of writers who inundated literature with their books upon the subject in fact most of the learned men of that age had some faith in it van helmet borricus kircher borhave and a score of others though not professed alchemists were fond of the science and countenanced its professors helvetius the grandfather of the celebrated philosopher of the same name asserts that he saw an inferior metal turned into gold by a stranger at the hague in sixteen sixty six he says that sitting one day in his study a man who was dressed as a respectable burgher of north holland and very modest and simple in his appearance called upon him with the intention of dispelling his doubts relative to the philosopher's stone he asked helvetius if he thought he should know that rare gem if he saw it to which helvetius replied that he certainly should not the burgher immediately drew from his pocket a small ivory box containing three pieces of metal of the color of brimstone and extremely heavy 
and assured Helvetius that of them he could make as much as twenty tons of gold. Helvetius informs us that he examined them very attentively, and seeing that they were very brittle, he took the opportunity to scrape off a small portion with his thumbnail. He then returned them to the stranger with an entreaty that he would perform the process of transmutation before him. The stranger replied that he was not allowed to do so, and went away. After his departure, Helvidius procured a crucible and a portion of lead, into which, when in a state of fusion, he threw the stolen grain from the philosopher's stone. He was disappointed to find that the grain evaporated altogether, leaving the lead in its original state. Some weeks afterwards, when he had almost forgotten the subject, he received another visit from the stranger. He again entreated him to explain the processes by which he pretended to transmute lead. The stranger at last consented, and informed him that one grain was sufficient, but that it was necessary to envelop it in a ball of wax, before throwing it on the molten metal otherwise its extreme volatility would cause it to go off in vapor they tried the experiment and succeeded to their heart's content helvidius repeated the experiment alone and converted six ounces of lead into very pure gold the fame of this event spread all over the hague and all the notable persons of the town flocked to the study of helvidius to convince themselves of the fact Helvetius performed the experiment again in the presence of the Prince of Orange and several times afterwards, till he had exhausted the whole of the powder he had received from the stranger, from whom, it is necessary to state, he never received another visit, nor did he ever discover his name or condition. In the following year, Helvetius published his Golden Calf, in which he detailed the above circumstances. About the same time, the celebrated Father Kircher published his Subterranean World, in which he called the alchemists a congregation of knaves and impostors, and their science a delusion. He admitted that he himself had been a diligent laborer in the field, had it only come to this conclusion after mature consideration and repeated fruitless experiments. All the alchemists were in arms immediately to refute this formidable antagonist. One Solomon de Blaustenstein was first to grapple with him and attempted to convict him of willful misrepresentation by recalling to his memory the transmutations by Sendivogius before the Emperor Frederick III and the Elector of Mayence all performed within a recent period zwelfer and glauber also entered into the dispute and attributed the enmity of father kircher to spite and jealousy against adepts who had been more successful than himself it was also pretended that gustavus adolphus transmuted a quantity of quicksilver into pure gold the learned boricus relates that he saw coins which had been struck of this gold and Langlet du Fresnoy deposes to the same circumstance. In The Travels of Monconis, the story is told in the following manner. A merchant of Lubbock, who carried on but little trade, 
but who knew how to change lead into very good gold, gave the king of Sweden a lingot, which he had made, weighing at least one hundred pounds. The king immediately caused it to be coined into ducats, and because he knew positively that its origin was such as has been stated to him, he had his own arms graven upon the one side, and emblematic figures of Mercury and Venus on the other. I, continued Monconus, have one of these ducats in my possession, and was credibly informed that after the death of the Lubbock merchant, who never appeared very rich, a sum of no less than one million seven hundred thousand crowns was found in his coffers. Such stories as these, confidently related by men in high station, tended to keep up the infatuation of the alchemists in every country of Europe. It is astonishing to see the number of works which were written upon the subject during the seventeenth century alone, and the number of clever men who sacrificed themselves to the delusion. Gabriel de Castaigne, a monk of the order of St. Francis, attracted so much notice in the reign of Louis the Thirteenth that that monarch secured him in his household and made him his grand almoner. He pretended to find the elixir of life, and Louis expected by his means to have enjoyed the crown for a century. Van Helmont also pretended to have once performed with success the process of transmuting quicksilver and was in consequence invited by the Emperor Rudolph II to fix his residence at the court of Vienna. Glauber, the inventor of the salts which still bear his name, and who practiced as a physician at Amsterdam about the middle of the seventeenth century, established a public school in that city for the study of alchemy, and gave lectures himself upon the science. John Joachim Becker of Spire, acquired great reputation at the same period, and was convinced that much gold might be made out of flintstones by a peculiar process and the aid of that grand and incomprehensible substance, the philosopher's stone. He made a proposition to the Emperor Leopold of Austria to aid him in these experiments, but the hope of success was too remote, and the present expense was too great to tempt that monarch, and he, therefore, gave Becker much of his praise, but none of his money. Becker afterwards tried the States General of Holland with no better success. With regard to the innumerable tricks by which impostors persuaded the world that they had succeeded in making gold, and of which so many stories were current about this period, a very satisfactory report was read by Monsieur Geoffrey, the elder, at the sitting of the Royal Academy of Sciences at Paris, on the 15th of April, 1722. As it relates principally to the alchemic cheats of the 16th and 17th centuries, the following abridgment of it may not be out of place in this portion of our history. The instances of successful transmutation were so numerous and apparently so well authenticated that nothing short of so able an exposure as that of Monsieur Geoffrey could disabuse the public mind. The trick to which they oftenest had recourse was to use a double-bottomed crucible, the under-surface being of iron or copper, and the upper one of wax, painted to resemble the same metal. 
between the two they placed as much gold or silver dust as was necessary for their purpose they then put in their lead quicksilver or other ingredients and placed their pot upon the fire of course when the experiment was concluded they never failed to find a lump of gold at the bottom the same result was produced in many other ways some of them used a hollow wand filled with gold or silver dust and stopped at the ends with wax or butter with this they stirred the boiling metal in their crucibles taking care to accompany the operation with many ceremonies to divert attention from the real purpose of the maneuver they also drilled holes in lumps of lead into which they poured molten gold and carefully closed the aperture with the original metal sometimes they washed a piece of gold with quicksilver when in this state they found no difficulty in palming it off upon the uninitiated as an inferior metal and very easily transmuted it to fine sonorous gold again with the aid of a little aquafortis others imposed by means of nails half iron and half gold or silver they pretended that they really transmuted the precious half from iron by dipping it in a strong alcohol Monsieur geoffrey produced several of these nails to the academy of sciences and showed how nicely the two parts were soldered together the gold or silver half was painted black to resemble iron and the color immediately disappeared when the nail was dipped into aquafortis a nail of this description was for a long time in the cabinet of the grand duke of tuscany such also said monsieur geoffrey was the knife presented by a monk to queen elizabeth of england the blade of which was half gold and half steel nothing at one time was more common than to see coins half gold and half silver which had been operated upon by alchemists for the same purposes of trickery in fact says m geoffrey in concluding his long report there is every reason to believe that all the famous histories which have been handed down to us about the transmutation of metals into gold or silver by means of powder or projection or philosophical elixirs are founded upon some successful deception of the kind above narrated these pretended philosophers invariably disappeared after the first or second experiment or their powders or elixirs have failed to produce their effect either because attention being excited they have found no opportunity to renew the trick without being discovered or because they have not had sufficient gold dust for more than one trial the disinterestedness of these would-be philosophers looked at first sight extremely imposing instances were not rare in which they generously abandoned all the profits of their transmutations even the honor of the discovery but this apparent disinterestedness was one of the most cunning of their maneuvers it served to keep up the popular expectation it seemed to show the possibility of discovering the philosopher's stone and provided the means of future advantages which they were never slow to lay hold of such as entrances into royal households maintenance at the public expense and gifts from ambitious 
potentates too greedy after the gold they so easily promised it now only remains to trace the progress of the delusion from the commencement of the eighteenth century until the present day it will be seen that until a very recent period there were but slight signs of a return to reason End of chapter 4, part 10.